Welcome to A Voice from the Hills, episode number three. I'm James Warner, co-founder of Silicon Hills Wealth Management here in Austin, Texas, and I'm really excited about today's podcast. If you've been following along our recent post on systematic and factor investing, you're going to love this episode. It really takes a village to put together a long-term investment strategy. I mean, you have to remain objective and do the research and the work, but you also have to collaborate with the best and brightest in the industry because investing is a continuous process. It's built on research, but it has to be continually tested and refined. You have to find a partner that has both the capability and commitment to do the research and a willingness to share that research and help your firm objectively review and modify your strategies. In an Alpha Architects, we found a firm that checks all those boxes. We're excited to be joined today by Dr. Jack Vogel, co-chief investment officer of Alpha Architects. And Jack is going to be joined today by Dean Rogers, our investment portfolio analyst, and Scott Wimmer, our director of client success, for a masterclass conversation on all things investing. So let's get started with some brief introductions so we can get the conversation going. James Warner is the founding partner of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by James, his co-host, and guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Silicon Hills Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Silicon Hills Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Thanks for joining us, everyone, today. This is Scott Wimmer, the Director of Client Success at Silicon Hills Wealth Management. I'm joined by Dean Rogers here, our Portfolio Analyst. Today, we are very thrilled to be joined by Dr. Jack Vogel. Dr. Vogel is currently a managing member of Alpha Architect, an SEC-registered investment advisor, where he heads the research department and serves as the chief financial officer. He has a PhD in finance and an MS in mathematics from Drexel University. He graduated summa cum laude with a BS in mathematics and education from the University of Scranton. So without further delay, let's get into it. Jack, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us and chat. Thank you very much for having me on. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and Alpha Architect in general. So uh, a little bit about myself. As you mentioned, originally was going to get a PhD in math. So right out of undergrad, was in a PhD in math program and realized that I was very interested in finance. So in my second year of the PhD in math program, one of the math professors was starting a couple classes to try to create like a mathematical finance program. Kind of fell through, but I really loved the derivative securities and fixed income class. So after deciding I didn't really want to be doing research on matrices for the rest of my life, I switched to finance. And that's kind of where I met Wes Gray. I was in the PhD in finance program. And Wes is the founder of Alpha Architect, and he had just graduated from Chicago and was a professor at Drexel. I started working with Wes back in 2010, over a decade now, and we basically started as a consulting firm for a large family office in New York City. So back in 2011 through 2013, basically for two and a half years, we were pseudo kind of outsourced CIO helping this large family office go through what were a lot of like complex hedge fund type strategies. And what came about is the family office was able to kind of with our guidance and help, able to bring in a lot of the assets back in-house where they now manage it. And we learned a lot of things throughout that process. We learned a lot about different hedge fund strategies. And we also learned about the importance of taxes. So after doing that, we started managing the money for the family in 2012. And in 2014, we started our own ETF business, whereby we made our strategies that were previously only available in managed accounts public to the market in ETFs. 
and we've been you know growing our business since then. The past th- two three years, we've been turning and focusing our efforts on working specifically with financial advisors and helping them and their clients. Jack, uh, thanks for joining us. It's uh, been exciting to work with you more and more over the last couple months. So your background is in math and as someone that shares a love, possibly an, an odd degree of love for statistics, how do you bridge the gap between the academic world and the real world for folks that you deal with? There, it's, it's interesting. You know, one thing is from an academic perspective, a lot of times, sometimes things that get studied don't necessarily follow through. When things are not thought about, such as like trading costs, frictions, the impact of liquidity in the process, that's how Wes and I kind of initially started. We were creating a blog on our website where we would review academic papers, try to summarize them for individuals, practitioners, but we also always had a lens of, hey, is this actually possible, right? So uh, a long, short strategy within microcaps is very hard to trade. And we know that because we actually do that. We kind of sit on two fences. We still do academic research, but we actually are practitioners. So it's like pre-academic is, is a term, but we're kind of in the middle and can hopefully try to bridge the gap between what the academic findings are and what actually happens to them. I know that a lot of people, they like to keep up with the markets. Maybe they're trading themselves. And a lot of times there's a lot of confidence that one will have. And they do a lot of research and it doesn't seem to go the way that they want. But there's this concept of, either trying to time the market or you have a hunch. There's so much information available to everybody, but it seems really hard to actually get a grip on what's happening day to day. What are you guys viewing as your your primary means of investing? I know you spend a lot of time on factors, but what exactly is that in layman's terms? As opposed to taking a traditional, what one would call an active approach, whereby, as you mentioned, there's a ton of information out there, right? So people can use this information to form theses, hypothesis, about what types of stocks they should buy, we focus our efforts on what's called factor investing. And what factor investing is, is simply a way to systematically tilt your portfolio towards stocks that have certain like characteristics. The simplest example would be value investing. We are proponents of two main factors, value investing and momentum investing. But value investing is simply saying you are going to tilt your portfolios towards stocks that are trading cheaper relative to other stocks. Now, now, what does a cheap stock mean? Well, let's pretend that two firms both have the same market cap of $100 million or $100 billion. Let's make it 2020 terms, $100 billion, right? But firm A only makes, uh, or makes $10 million a year and firm B makes $50 million a year. So firm A is trading at 100 times earnings. Firm B is trading at 20 times earnings. From an academic perspective, the cheaper stock would be firm B, right? And we tried to tilt our portfolio in the value side towards firms that are trading cheaper relative to other stocks. Now, I know that you use the term systematic, and we, we do as well. That's something on our website, and Scott wrote a piece about being systematic. What is your guys' definition of being systematic and how you guys employ discipline in running your ETFs? The process we employ is a systematic process where we are going to rebalance into value or momentum stocks every three months, right? A couple things are set there. We have the strategy we're going to use, which is value or momentum, and then we rebalance every three months, right? And we also are going to equal weight the positions 
in order to equalize the bets across the firms that we invest into. By being systematic, we're going to follow the same process over and over again, as opposed to a traditional active manager who maybe three months ago didn't like Amazon because they thought it had bad, bad technicals, and today they like Amazon because it has good fundamentals. As opposed to changing and using various inputs, we're going to use the exact same inputs every time we rebalance our strategy, which is going to be either our value or our momentum characteristics. I think you already touched on value. Can you dive in a little bit on what factors Alpha Architect believes in? There's a zoo of factors out there, right? There's literally hundreds of factors that have been identified, but you can believe in a handful of factors that really are reliable. Yeah. We focus specifically on the value factor as well as the momentum factor. Now, we use other factors that are known as well. So within our value process, we use a quality filter, right? Quality is looking for firms that have, you know, better return on assets. Their margins are increasing, right? And within momentum, we attempt to sort out some of the higher volatility firms. I'll give you a a real live experience. The past couple of times we've rerun our momentum filter, we've seen GameStop come up. And GameStop, while it is a high momentum stock, definitely has a ton of volatility, our frog in the pan process, which attempts to kind of screen out some low volatility firms, kicked that firm out of our process. Now, Concord was kind of highlighting that across the past 40 years, academics have been testing a lot of these factors and come up with hundreds, like it was like 400 plus, which he cites. And what he highlights, and there's a couple of other papers actually that are out there nowadays, basically have found that there's really only four to six factors that when you include them all, you can account for like 95 to 98% of the market's movements. And that's really the market, which is obviously an important factor, probably the most important factor, as well as size, value, momentum, and then quality. We only focus on the two factors, but we use some of the other ones like size because we equal weight as well as a quality in our process as well. And I know that a lot of our clients are probably familiar with value investing. I mean, that's kind of the Warren Buffett been around for a while, Ben Graham. But can you give us a little more detail on what exactly momentum investing is? Is that growth investing or is that different than growth investing? Momentum investing sounds like growth investing, right? Value investing is buying cheap stocks. Growth investing is buying expensive stocks. Now, what momentum investing is, is simply when you rebalance your portfolio, you're going to buy securities specifically on their past price plus dividend, so total return for the stock over the past year. But what you would do is you would, let's say we had 100 stocks from which we could choose. We would rank all of the stocks from 1 to 100 based on their past return. And we would simply rebalance and go and buy the firms that did the best. So if we wanted to buy the top 20%, we would buy the 20 best firms with the best total return over the past year. Depends on your look back period. You can use various look back periods. But momentum is simply, simply put, buying the winning stocks in the market. You also asked, is it growth investing? Wes and I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Quantitative Momentum. And we actually had an entire chapter dedicated to that question. Is momentum investing growth investing? Because they sound exactly the same. And what we found is it really isn't. There's really only like a 20% overlap from the momentum portfolio and a growth portfolio. That's one of the things is momentum investing is not growth investing, even though it kind of sounds like it. 
I read that book that you guys wrote uh, a couple years ago. So it's interesting to kind of get some more detail there on momentum and value. Yeah. And, um, and one other thing about momentum is it's – especially the way we do it as well as other providers, You know, it is actually untied from fundamentals. It's totally just related to price and total return. Another question I have around that area is why do you guys combine value and momentum? What are some of the benefits of targeting both of those factors in the same portfolio? That's a great question. The reason we like those two factors is when we talk about a factor. So an academics consider factors to be these paper long short portfolios where you go long value stocks, short growth stocks, long high momentum stocks, short low momentum stocks. And what academics have found, as well as across other asset classes, but specifically within stocks, is that these two factors happen to be negatively correlated. So that's great. What happens is when something is negatively correlated, that means that effectively when one does well, the other does poorly, right? When one does poorly, the other does well. So there's some portfolio benefits to holding these. And now from a long-only sense, like how your clients will probably partake in these value and momentum factors, they're still going to be positively correlated because you're not going to run these short books. However, these two factors actually have like the lowest correlation amongst all the factors, which is great because when you combine the two in a portfolio, if you can combine things that have lower correlations but positive expected returns, you can increase the risk-adjusted return for the portfolio. Now, I, I've heard you say before that factor investing is essentially passively active. Now, is that – would you say that this, this concept of being passively active and, and relying on factors to generate your returns, is that a new way of investing or is it really just a, a different manner to view investing? It's definitely been around. I mean, obviously, this has been around since the mid-90s, right? Um, like, dimensional fund advisors kind of kind of started factor investing, and they were you know early movers on this. What I'd say is it is a way to be active because you are not just simply going and buying the entire market. My definition of active is anything that deviates from the market weights of all stocks out there, like what you would otherwise get if you bought the total stock market portfolio. So we kind of view if you're different from just buying the market, you're active. But factor investing is a way to be active, but yet be systematic about the process. So the end investor has a better understanding as to what they're actually investing in. Whereas, you know, just your traditional active manager really has leeway to do kind of whatever he or she pleases on a whim. Obviously, they put thought into the process, but in general, they have a lot more flexibility than what we have doing what's called systematic active. If you're an RIA or a wealth manager, someone managing assets on behalf of someone else, it might make a little bit more sense to do something like this. But let's say someone wants to try their hand at this on their own. What do you think are some easy ways that you've seen folks implement this in their own portfolios? One can do active investing via systematic processes in their own portfolio. Obviously, what will have to happen, though, is you have to start by retrieving the data because all these processes require data. For value, for example, we sort firms on enterprise multiples. And all that is, it's how much money does the firm make? Like, So it's you take the operating income and then you divide it by how much is the firm worth, right? Total enterprise value. And so that's just you have to add up the market cap of the firm, the debt of the firm, very simplistic, and subtract off cash. There's some minor other variables. But you have to get this data for all the firms that are out there in your universe. Then you have to rank them. Then you have to decide when you're going to rebalance your portfolio. 
And by the way, if you do this in a taxable account, you may have some tax issues. Momentum maybe is a little bit easier because you just need price return data. So that's somewhat easy to do. But again, momentum is a strategy where you have to rebalance it kind of frequently. Otherwise, the, the premium kind of decays quickly. So it's not that systematic active can't be done. It's just that it does require some work to be done in an account. Being systematic can add a lot of value because it kind of helps keep some of the emotional biases out of it. One of the things that we've started implementing at our firm is trend following. And that is to help us be systematic in our approach, at least within our core asset classes. You've gotten to pull back the curtain a little bit on the, the model that we're running and how we're viewing things. But as a whole, I mean, how would you describe trend following strategies versus momentum? Because once again, just like growth and momentum, they do seem kind of similar. We actually, at our firm, employ trend following strategy within equities as across, and also across other asset classes such as futures, bonds, real estate, commodities. So we are familiar with trend following. And what is trend following and how is it different than momentum? Trend following is a way to systematically change your exposure to a given asset class at a given time. For example, let's say we're looking just at U.S. stocks. So a simplistic trend-following rule on U.S. equity portion of the portfolio would say if over the past year the trend is positive, right? So the total return for stocks is positive, we are going to stay invested. If the total return is negative, we are going to go into cash or bonds, like a safer type asset. So that's a simple trend-following rule, right? Momentum, on the other hand, would take a couple of either asset classes or we do it in stocks. So we say, hey, U.S. stocks, we're going to pick the winners. Momentum within like a global macro perspective would say, we're going to look at U.S. stocks, international stocks, and emerging stocks. And what we're going to do is this month, because maybe U.S. is winning, we're going to overweight U.S. And emerging is losing, we're going to underweight emerging. So I'd say that's kind of the... As simple as I can explain, the difference between trend following and momentum is trend following is a way to kind of go into or out of an asset class based on its own performance, whereas momentum will change the weightings within a portfolio based on an asset's performance relative to other asset classes. Our trend following strategy that we're using, I mentioned that the way that we've tried to program it is that it'll tactically adjust allocations kind of based on different signals we're getting across the economic cycle. There might be a rotation into treasuries or gold and vice versa, right? If it's bullish, maybe more so into equities. Your response was that, well, really, you're just adjusting your exposure to the market, right? Or the beta factor. And I got to thinking to myself, are there certain factors that do perform best at different parts of the economic cycle? Yeah, well, obviously, yeah. And so just talking about your, your strategy, the tactical sleeve, you are at times adjusting your beta to the market because at certain times, you're going to be more overweight equities. At certain times, you're going to be more overweight treasuries. And so beta, just for everyone to make sure you understand what that is, that's kind of your exposure to the market. But beta of one would mean you literally just own like the market portfolio, and we usually compare, assume the market portfolio is just like U.S. stocks. A beta of zero would say you have no market exposure. But as opposed to simply just holding the market, at times you may say, hey, 
treasuries and maybe commodities such as gold are doing better right now. So we're going to overweight that and underweight equities, maybe like March of last year. So your beta, as opposed to being one and just going down with the market, you might be slightly up or only down a little bit because you've adjusted your beta tactically. And one variable that is somewhat beneficial, because we did look at this for the family office, it's like one of the projects was, hey, go out and try to figure out how to time the market. You're like, wow, that's that's a tough project. But two important variables that kind of popped out are really actually these price signals. The first is momentum, right? And you guys are kind of using that in your process a little bit to overweight, underweight certain asset classes based on relative performance. And the second is trend following because at times if trends go negative, it may be better to reduce your exposure to that. Momentum and trend are two valuable variables in attempting to try to time the market uh, and different macro events. One of the things I want to hit on is the difference between mutual funds and ETFs and why you guys are bullish on the ETF structure. Yeah, there's, I would say, two main differences between mutual funds and ETFs. The first is the simplest, which is a mutual fund. You cannot buy intraday, right? So if you go to buy a mutual fund, you are given whatever it's called the end of day NAV, the net asset value of the fund. If you buy at 9.35 in the morning, it doesn't matter. You're going to get the exact same price as someone who bought at noon and the exact same price as someone who bought at 3.59. You're going to get the end of day NAV. Whereas an ETF, it's actually priced every single nanosecond of every day. If you buy at 9.30, you might get a different price than you would if you bought at 3.55. That's the first main difference. The second main difference has to do with kind of the tax efficiency of ETFs relative to mutual funds. In general, ETFs are a much more tax-efficient vehicle that fund managers can use to effectively run somewhat more active strategies within the ETF wrapper relative to mutual funds. And that is the main reason that we chose the ETF wrapper relative to mutual funds. As I mentioned at the very beginning, we started off with a family office. And one of the things we always thought about was, hey, is this strategy, does this strategy make sense after taxes? Because you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you have to pay half the money to the government, well, you're, you might be better off just buying the market. So ETFs are definitely more tax efficient than mutual funds, and that is why we prefer that wrapper. Now, what about liquidity? I mean, understanding those differences, do you think one poses more risk, let's say, if there is an extreme sell-off like we saw in March of last year? It depends on how you want to view it. I actually think that ETFs – well, I don't think ETFs pose a liquidity risk to market. Let me just be upfront clear about that. Secondarily, there's some weird things that happened last March that actually highlight the value of the ETF wrapper and actually how sometimes maybe mutual funds may not be doing what's actually best for the fund shareholder. I'll give you one example. Last March, when, as everyone remembers, you know the whole market kind of went down, basically every asset class pretty much went down except for maybe gold and U.S. Treasury bonds. And specifically within the bond complex – Right, High yield municipal bonds happened to sell off harshly just because everything was selling off harshly. And I only knew about this. I had a call with someone in February who told me about uh, University of Wisconsin bonds that were trading at you know 2%, basically yield to maturity. 
right? So you would get 2% on an after-tax because it's a municipal bond basis. Fast forward, we're mid-March. I get call it the same person. They're talking about the same bonds. They're now trading at 8%, right? So in mid-February, the yield of maturity was 2%. Mid-February, the yield of maturity was 8%. I happen to know someone who had a pretty decent chunk of money in a uh, high-yield municipal bond fund. I went and I looked. I was like, well, hey, you know, if, if the bond went from 2% to 8%, what does that mean for all your listeners? When bond yields go up, that means that prices go down, right? And so I was expecting to see that the high-yield municipal bond fund had fallen by 20% because that's probably what it should have done. But it actually had only fallen by like 2%. I look onto the open market, and again, so that was a mutual fund. It was only down like 2 to 3%. I looked on the open market at an ETF, and an ETF that's doing the same thing was down 25%. You're like, wow, this doesn't make sense. One of these two has to be wrong. The mutual fund said it was down 2 to 3%. The ETF was down 25%. Well, what's the difference? The ETF, when you go and buy or sell a specific ETF – the market-making firm, so a firm on the other side, has to be able to buy or sell. They have to cover their position. So they're actually every single nanosecond, they have to real-time price every security in that basket. It's probably the case that the ETF was properly priced at negative 25% and the mutual fund was not properly priced probably because – and there's no right or wrong answer, but probably what happened was a lot of the bonds within the mutual fund didn't trade. They only are going to update the price, the nav of the fund if a specific bond trades. That's a weird example I just gave you, but I actually know someone who basically went from the high-yield muni bond mutual fund into the ETF. They sold it down 3%. Bought this that was already down 25%, 30%. And by the way, now the two are even again. In my opinion, I think ETFs provide real-time liquidity and real-time prices for a lot of asset classes that are out there. In fact, they almost nowadays are pretty much providing price information to the underlying asset classes in more illiquid asset classes. I know that was a roundabout long answer, but that was just one weird example that I saw that occurred where the ETF actually was – Definitely priced properly, in my opinion, and the mutual fund was not. Huh, interesting. You know, Wall Street is sometimes afraid of the new kid on the block, and ETFs are kind of still the new kid on the block. And sometimes you hear on Wall Street that ETFs are distorting market efficiencies, when in reality they might be increasing market efficiencies, it sounds like. There, there's a chance. I don't, I don't think it goes one way. I, I do think I do think in I, I think in the more illiquid asset classes, they are providing better price understanding. I would agree with that. ETFs obviously have risen in popularity, and there's a ton of ETFs to choose from out there. And a lot of them are just strictly matching a benchmark, just strictly passive owning a benchmark. So what are some of the downsides of just pure passive indexing to, say, the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ? First off, you know, buying the market is, is not a bad thing, right? Like essentially being invested in equities in general is a good thing. You specifically asked what are some of the downsides. So just want to caveat this by saying obviously market beta is important, right? One of the downsides is you don't get to capture some of these other factors that we know have historically worked. Like as we mentioned before, we focus on the value factor and the momentum factor. And there are other firms that specifically target like the size factor. If you simply just bought the S&P 500, 
that's great. You're going to 100% get the S&P 500 stock returns, but you're going to potentially give up exposure to some of these other factors that we know historically have worked in many markets across different time and basically are things that probably investors should allocate some money towards, such as value, momentum, and size. Simply just buying the market, you don't get access to those factors. Hmm. We've seen an explosion, obviously, the last 10 years with uh, factor investing in and of itself. I think a lot of firms have jumped into that, that game. You guys are dealing in you know the capital markets every single day, every single week, and you're very well educated and trained there. What are some of the odd things that you guys are seeing in the market right now? As our clients are listening in, they're probably wanting to notice, what are you guys looking at that just seems strange? I think one thing, obviously, that seems kind of strange at first glance would be maybe like the GameStop phenomenon, right? Whereby a firm that, you know, effectively, from all objective purposes, has declining, it's a declining business at some level, or, or it was, it definitely was. They're now attempting a turnaround strategy to try to get more of the online gaming market, try to get some sales from online sales. Because obviously, as more games go online, a store that's selling individual cartridges for old gaming consoles, that's a, that's a bad business. But at first glance, I would say that seems kind of you know very weird in that, hey, this stock that was very low is now trading at a couple hundred dollars. Its market cap is massive and seems to like kind of just deviate from normal market behavior. That's one example. Now, on the other side, the flip side, just say, hey, well, is that can can something like this even be rational? Like, can this GameStop move be rational? And the answer is actually yes, because why would it be yes? Well, hey, if there's like a huge herd of people that just want to keep buying this stock, irregardless of price, like they're just like, hey, we're just going to keep buying and buying and buying. Well, there's no reason for anyone to short that stock because if they do, they're just going to lose their money. And if you're running a hedge fund or you have someone in your hedge fund that's called risk management, they're going to be like, what are you doing? We just don't have to go bankrupt. <laughs> so hedge funds are not going to short it. And market-making firms are going to willingly make markets in stocks that have tons of volume and basically now have new liquidity in there. So while it seems kind of crazy and, you know, at the GameStop phenomenon, it, it can be somewhat rationalized by just kind of herd behavior moving the price of a stock. As now, well do you as think people on the other side getting out of the way? Now, do you think that such herding behavior presents any legitimate risks? I mean, if you look at the, the total capitalization of the S&P 500, GameStop isn't very big. Yeah. But do you think that that type of, call it gambling more or less, could actually disrupt or, or cause some issues with market efficiency? Not sure if it would impact market efficiency. It could impact markets potentially depending on how this was bet on with margin and are firms actually putting their own money at risk as opposed to underlying individuals. You're right. Unfortunately, it may be pseudo gambling for certain people, but hopefully where it would impact markets and cause actual like systemic risk is if firm basically was short money and its customers didn't have it. And I, and I don't think that's happened yet. Yeah, no, and I think kind of on that same vein, I mean, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrencies and the blockchain in general? I'm not a crypto expert. I'll caveat it with that. What I will say is on cryptocurrencies, it's, you know, people, a lot of times people just say, what are your thoughts on crypto? And they forget it's cryptocurrency. And one thing that's interesting about currency is currencies from into from US dollar into another country can vary wildly over time. I think 
the way I kind of think of it is it is a currency. It's not a stock because it doesn't provide cash flows or a bond where it's like you own assets if the company goes bankrupt. Can't classify as a stock, can't classify it as a bond, but it has to be classified as a currency. And I only know this because I had someone in my class, I teach Villanova MBA classes once or twice a year. And I had someone who mentioned, hey, yeah, have you looked at like the Turkish lira? I was like, huh, I didn't realize. Well, hey, over the past like 10 years, Turkish lira has been greatly devalued. At times, currencies are going to fluctuate in their price from one thing to another, from a purchasing power perspective. I kind of view crypto as a currency that if you want to take a bet on it because you believe that there's going to be more use of it, that's great. My personal view, not alpha architect (laughs) view, again, is that I do think that there's probably going to be like few winners in the crypto space. Bitcoin obviously appears to be kind of like digital type gold. And I think in the US, we take property rights like such for granted. We just like assume, hey, you know, I have money in my bank account and I own my house, like that's mine. In other countries all over the world, that's not the case. One of the neat things about the blockchain and cryptocurrency is there actually is like a demand in a lot of countries around this world to you'd rather have your money in crypto than keep it in your own countries like currency. So there definitely is like a demand for these types of asset for this for this currency because if you get it there and can securely keep your assets there, however you want to use your wallet, digitally, physical. Either way, there, there is like actually a market for it. I, I don't think it's a something you need to allocate towards. I don't think it's a thing bad to allocate towards. I wouldn't put all my money in it though. I'd probably – I'd have that in my 10% fund bucket money is what I would say. With the onset of COVID last year, there was a, a tremendous amount of liquidity provided, not just to the markets, but to the people that needed it most. But you now have folks, as we recover post-pandemic, this concept of inflation and possible currency devaluations. Is it really propping up markets or does the inflation risk outweigh that? I mean, just kind of high level, what are your thoughts on on those those monetary events we've seen over the last 18 months? There's been a lot of money thrown around and – When that happens, in general, simplistic models would assume it would cause inflation, and I definitely think it probably has caused inflation. If you even listen to Powell recently, he kept talking about transitory, 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 but now it appears to be it's, well, hey, the actual bump is not transitory. We just expect the growth in the future to slow down. I mean, I know because I did work in my house pre-pandemic and I studied Home Depot was $1.49. I am building a closet in my house right now, and the stud at Home Depot is $5.29. That's a pretty substantial you know, inflation shock. Now, there's a lot of other things that have happened during COVID, right? Supply chains have definitely been disrupted, and there probably will be inflationary effects there, right? For right or wrong reasons, not only the Fed, but the government has realized we may be too reliant on certain countries for like very critical infrastructure pieces and we might want to move some of those parts onshore or maybe to like Mexico and Canada or somewhere where it's a little bit closer and that's probably going to cause more inflation. So in general, a ton of monetary stimulus, monetary and fiscal stimulus, very simplistic models would generally assume it would cause inflation and it definitely appears to have caused inflation is what I would say. Interesting to get your insights on the economic side of things there for sure. What is the most misunderstood thing about investing? What's the most misunderstood thing that clients 
have when they think about investing? What I'll say is this is uh, something I like to teach in my MBA class. And basically the idea is equity markets have this thing called equity risk premium, whereby if you simplistically just bought the market in the past, you would have gained 5% above treasury bonds, which is great. But I think people misunderstand that going out and just picking random stocks is not the equity risk premium. And there's that great Best and Binder paper. Sorry for your audience. It's an academic paper that kind of highlighted that essentially if you just went out and picked like random stocks, you had very low probability of, of success. And so I think one of the biggest misunderstandings is there is an equity risk premium. There's a reason to own equities, but you have to do it in, in a smart fashion. You can't just go out and pick random stocks because if you do that, your ex-ante probability of success is pretty low. Yeah, I think a great analogy I, I heard one time was don't try to find the needle in the haystack, right? Just buy the whole haystack. I think that might have been Jack Bogle. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's a good lesson. In general, like one of my favorite quotes on investing is, wealth is built through concentration, preserved through diversification. And so what do I mean by that? Well, for a lot of people, your concentration, you're building wealth because either maybe you own a business or you have a good job, right? And if you have a good job, you're concentrated in one job for a very long time and you can build up wealth. And to preserve your wealth, you want to diversify your portfolio. You don't want to go be a stock picker and be out there just taking random bets. You'd be better off preserving it and growing it by having a more diversified portfolio. I guess my next question is, what's the most common error investors tend to make? I think the biggest error is probably just honestly not having a very well thought out plan whereby when volatility occurs, they end up changing drastically what they were going to do with their portfolio. And this is where advisors can help because obviously advisors can help come up with a plan so that when March of 2020 hits or December of 2008 hits, uh, your clients understand, yes, there's going to be volatility because we are investing in somewhat volatile asset classes, but we have a plan. We have a, an idea for how we're going to get through this and what what we're going to do. But I think the biggest issue for people that fail at investing is they don't have a, a very well thought out plan where they think about what's going to happen when volatility does hit. Warren Buffett talks about Mr. Market and what he learned from Ben Graham and kind of the idea that Mr. Market comes to you all the time with prices on businesses, but he's manic depressive. So he <laughs> gets really excited sometimes. and He's like, hey, things are going amazing. And then he also gets really depressed sometimes and, you know, the world's going to end. So it's back and forth. And Warren Buffett always says the most important thing to realize is you don't have to do business with Mr. Market. So stay in control. So that's good. I like that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of flip that question. So what are some of the most successful traits or the most common traits you see in successful investors? Obviously, I said unsuccessful, you don't have a plan. Uh, successful ones, I think, can – I think the biggest trait is an ability to kind of look longer term and understand that short-run volatility will always occur. But over long, long time cycles – asset classes will grow. For example, if you're an investor in equities, like why would you just think long-term that stocks would go up? Well, think about this. A lot of the CEOs and CFOs, people running these companies, are very smart people. I don't think anyone would say they're not. And they're incentivized by the board, especially in the US. They're incentivized 
to grow the company. Essentially, if you're an investor in equities, you should know over the long run there is this expected equity risk premium, but it comes with short-run volatility. Successful investors are able to kind of look out into the future and understand or keep goals like longer term is what I would say. And then obviously, corollary is you have to have a, a decent, well-thought-out plan and follow that plan. Oh, it goes back to being systematic. Yeah, true. Staying systematic, I guess. That's uh, going back to the original approach we were talking about there. So that's great to gather all that uh, information there and kind of take a peek into your thoughts and ideas. That's pretty much all for me. Dean, do you have anything else to add? I don't think so, but it's been really insightful. I appreciate the time, Jack. Yeah, I enjoyed the conversation and hopefully we can do this again. Yeah, sounds great. That brings us to the end of our Investment Conversations podcast with Dr. Jack Vogel of Alpha Architects. Thanks to Scott and Dean for moderating, and thanks to Dr. Jack and the entire Alpha Architects team. We truly appreciate you. We've got some really great content on the way, so please remember to follow us on social media, subscribe to us on YouTube, and look for us on your favorite podcast platforms. We're on Spotify, iHeart, and soon to be on Apple Podcasts. And for those of you with Alexa-enabled devices who want to get regular updates from Silicon Hills, Just ask Alexa for the latest update from Silicon Hills Well. And finally, thank you for listening, because we can truly only do our best work when you are here to listen.